Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When the Soviet Union fell, it seemed like liberal democratic capitalism was clearly the best economic and political system, and perhaps the only viable one. But the rise of China, as well as the resurgence of socialist and nationalist movements within the West, has fueled concerns that capitalism's victory may not be as permanent as we thought. To discuss the future of capitalism and democracy, I'm excited to be joined by Branko Milanovic. Branko is a visiting professor at the City University in New York's Graduate Center, and he's a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. He's also the author of several books, including Worlds Apart, Global Inequality, and most recently, last year's Capitalism Alone. Branko, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. Right early in the book, you say, capitalism is, quote, not only the dominant, but the sole socioeconomic system in the world. I think there are people these days who would add, for the moment. Is, well, there, is, is there a challenge? Is there, can, that, can that be challenged? Is, is that a forever statement? Is that an end of history argument? No, it's not the end of history argument because towards the end of my book, I actually do mention that there could be some possible changes in the sense that capitalism could actually lose the dominant uh, or the sole role. But before I come to that, let me just say the following. There may be people today who actually talk about socialism, but in the U.S. discourse, that socialism is really social democracy, which is, of course, a capitalist system by any definition in, in the sense that, of course, most of the production is done on privately owned capital, it's done for profit, and most of the employees or workers are actually hard workers. So it's really the, the issue is terminological, not really a substantive. Now, the second part of your question was... Uh, the, the capitalism be, being a sole mode of production is sometimes questioned by people who question, uh, who wonder if China is really capitalist. Right. So here we it's really very, have, is, They may say you're using a, a, such a broad definition of capitalism, perhaps it doesn't have that much meaning. Yeah, but they would be wrong on that because I'm using a very, actually very specific definition of capitalism, which you just mentioned, that actually you have privately owned capital, most of the labor is hard labor, and decentralization, the production is conducted by uh, through decentralized coordination. And actually, if you look at China, and that's why in Chapter 3 I have like, you know, about 10 or 15 pages on Chinese uh, production, if you will, uh, you have 90% of, of labor force that is actually working in private or self-employed, because obviously agriculture is self-employed. You have t uh, about 75% of the value added, which is non-state. So I think actually the arguments that China is capitalist are quite strong. So it's not that, that I'm using an idiosyncratic definition of capitalism. I think I'm using the most standard Marx, Max Weber definition of capitalism. Um, uh, I think at least in this country, when we think capitalism, we think what maybe other people call sort of American-style capitalism, and that's different certainly than what we see in China, and I guess it, it's different uh, than what we see in the, uh, Scandinavia. What is the state of American-style capitalism? Is it a style of capitalism, which is the dominant form, form of capitalism, or is that changing if it isn't? 
Yeah, you see, now we enter, I think, into more, how should I say, substantive discussion, because I do argue in the book that while capitalism is alone as the really the only mode of production now which connects the entire world, it is not identical. And uh, I think that was the mistake of people who believed in the end of history. They actually believed that both politically and economically, the world would actually converge to a single regime, single way of doing things and politically expressing opinions and so on. And I think, if anything, we know now that that actually did not happen. And I believe there are good reasons, historical and other reasons, why this is unlikely to happen. So now, to answer very quickly your question, uh, of course, American-style capital is not the only capitalism. As you mentioned, there is social democratic capitalism, which is still strong in Europe, even if it is on, on some, under some pressure. And there is, of course, the Chinese type of what I call political capitalism. And of course, I explain in the book the definitions and why I think it's a politi- political capitalism. But it is nevertheless capitalism still. But capitalism, you know, our, in the United States, our right. experience is capitalism and democracy go together, political freedom and economic freedom. But obviously what we've seen with China is that capitalism, at least in your definition, doesn't need democracy. Uh, You can have have a capitalist society where people work for the private sector, where there's profits, but it's not a democracy. I would say, no, I don't want to go into this really very serious political discussion, but I think that this is a, a misconception that capitalism and democracy go together. Actually, if you look, and I did some small calculation using Polity 4 data, if you look historically from 1820, the current definition of democracy and capitalism were practically not linked at all. If you look at number of country years, I think it was 15% of country years. Uh, And even the U.S., if I may remind you, was an oligarchy originally. And then, of course, slaveholding oligarchy. So it was really far from democracy. Actually, if you look at 1770, I think 1787, I believe, uh, only four states had male franchise. Quasi full male. So, you know, what we actually do now, we project a very modern concept of democracy backwards, but really it was not the case. Capitalism existed without democracy and actually did quite well. And even today, actually, if you look, I mean, today meaning in a very recent period, Mm -hmm. you had Greece, you had Chile, you had Spain, you had Portugal, you had Turkey, you had Brazil, number of countries that were not democratic. Do you think sort of a a capitalist economy, especially what some people might call like a market economy, is that supportive of democracy? Or are the two things sort of... I think it can be supportive. You know, I'm not totally sort of rejecting modernization argument, you know, that uh, that essentially as people get rich, then they, of course, tend to also want to have greater say in decision-making. You know? I would and, really like to believe that very badly. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, there are some arguments, as we have seen, that, you know, Hunt, Huntington was writing about that. And, of course, it is true that if you look at Taiwan, for example, look at South Korea, and all the countries that I mentioned before, Portugal, Greece, uh, uh, Spain, and so forth, there was eventually demand for democracy. Now, let me just tell you, although it was not really implied directly in your question, but one can actually answer that question too. Uh, the same uh, argument could be also made that uh, middle class demand for democracy was something which actually ended communism. You know, that was the argument made in the 1960s by Raymond Aron when he was saying that actually that increase of income and education in then communist countries would eventually sort of be the death 
you know, null of communism because of the demand for democracy. So I'm not rejecting that argument, and you can actually turn it against me and say, well, wouldn't that mean that China will have eventually to become democratic? I think it's a legitimate question to ask. But we're, uh, but there seems to be less confidence in that answer than there was, you know, 20 years ago when it, when it, when it seemed like it was just, you know, sort of an unstoppable force. It was kind of a, an iron law of history that that was going to happen. Now people are seeing somewhat less confident. Yes, I think that people are less confident. I think the reason we are less confident is because of what we have seen on the last, like, almost, you know, 30 years or, mm-hmm. you know, after after the, broadly speaking, the fall of the Berlin Wall. We did have seen uh, sort of a declines in democracy. Uh, not only, I mean, when you measure it by the typical standards of polity or other indicators, but we see also, in, you know, r- retreat of democracy in China, if you will. And then also that countries like Vietnam, for example, can work quite well without democracy. And even, you can say, some backsliding in the democratic countries. I don't want now to, to mention, but of course, some countries in Eastern Europe are mentioned all the time. I'm not totally convinced it's true, so that's why I want to mention the names. But I'm saying that's was the argument that is being made. Is, is, is socialism, and I'll just uh, define it, where government owns the leading in, uh, uh, industries. You can still have your private uh, grocery store, the bodega down the street, but the leading sectors are owned by the government. Is that a, is that a dead economic theory? Is that a dead ideology? Well, I mean, you described to, to some extent China, not fully, because, of course, the Chinese banking system, as we know, is very much uh, directed by state. state. The state has a, an important role. And, of course, several large industries like, uh, uh, you know, steel produces iron, electricity, is still state-owned. But that's not a model which is very different. Actually, it's not different at all from the model that, for example, Turkey had in the, nine, in the you know, seven, from the 50s onwards. Or even when I looked, actually, I have this in the book, when I look at the share of labor force in China today being employed in the state sector, including plus administration and all the rest, that number is very similar to what France had in 1982. It's slightly higher. I think it's 22 in China, maybe it was 15 in France. So it's slightly higher. But it's not very different. Uh, So whether that model is dead, I'm not quite convinced. And actually, you see that model being now maybe implemented from the right not necessarily from the left. You can see it actually that Bolsonaro might actually do that in Brazil. You can see that actually Boris Johnson with all these plans for regional revitalization and the role of the state, we can see now the role of the state being used by people who are ostensibly quote-unquote right-wing doing that. And so I'm not quite convinced that actually that model, um, leaving even aside China, Mm -hmm. uh, that that model has absolutely no future. Uh, certainly, when I'm on, I don't. Uh, when I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, write or I'll tweet about, you know, capitalism and markets. And I, what I'm repeatedly told is that, uh, really, just wait. That this is we're actually in a period of something called late capitalism, where the system, because of the inequality, has grown so absurd and unstable, there th- that. It cannot continue like that. It's just, it just cannot continue, and then we're going to get something else. I'm not sure exactly what that something else is, but do you think we are in a period of late capitalism where, where it is ripe for substantive change so that we will not recognize American capitalism a generation from now? 
Well, Johnny, it's interesting that you mentioned late capitalism because I, I think actually that we are, as I argued recently when I wrote that it was not a crisis of capitalism, we are actually in some sense, in my opinion, and I'll explain why I think mm-hmm. so, at the apogee, like really high point, apotheosis of capitalism now. And why I, I think so is, first of all, the spread of capitalism, which you already talked about, you know, to all the countries. Secondly, the support of the current system of decentralized coordination and private ownership which is very strong in all Asian countries. And the Asian countries are, you know, I mean, more than a half of the world population. And when you look at these surveys, for example, Vietnam comes in with 91% for globalization, whereas the bottom is France with, I think, less than 30%. So uh, to a large extent, what we call the crisis of capitalism is really, the, I think, actually the crisis of the middle classes in Western countries that have not benefited from globalization as much as they were expecting or as much as they saw their top 1% benefit. And then they, of course, question how that system is implemented at their own home, while we just tend to forget, because of course we live in the United States or Western Europe, we tend to forget that actually the support for the system is very strong in really big parts of the world. Is the U.S run by an oligarchy. When you and people call uh, people, uh, whether it's um, Bill Gates or Michael Bloomberg, very, you know, wealthy people or billionaires many times, they call them oligarchs. Is that the, does that make sense to you? Does that feel right that that's that's a good description of America's billionaires. We have sort of become used to calling oligarchs the rich Russians and the Americans have become plutocrats. <laughs> uh, I actually think that it is a reasonable description in the sense that you can argue that uh, democracy particularly in the U.S., where actually there is, you know, practically no limits on, on, on campaign spending, that democracy gradually could, I'm not saying is, but could, be hollowed out and replaced with something that on the face of it would look democratic, but would be substantially directed by the rich who would essentially buy legislation, not only through the president, but as we know that in the U.S., like most of the legislation depends on the, uh, you know, collaboration or decision made decisions by Congress. So if that Congress becomes really essentially an appendage of the rich, then obviously the legislation would be the legislation of the rich. Let me just say there, I often make this comparison, which I think is very relevant comparison. If you look at the Roman Republic, it was a republic. It was, of course, an oligarchy of the senators who were decision makers. But when it became de facto dictatorship with the empire and with Octavian being the first emperor, all the accoutrements of the republic continued. You know, there were uh, annual votes of senators. Mm-hmm. Of course, they would vote, vote Octavian and then Tiberius afterwards and so forth. But it really seemed, on the face of it, continuation of the Roman Republic. So that, I think, is a danger that could happen in democratic countries that does, is, essentially we have a system which looks similar to what we had before, but it's really fundamentally changed. So what's the... You know, so what's sort of the preemptive solution to that? Is it, is it making is it you know making sure that Jeff Bezos instead of being worth 120 billion, he's worth 60 billion? Is it is it that some you know some sort of wealth tax over time dramatically changes uh, these fortunes, dramatically reduces? Is that is that the kind of thing we need? 
Certainly well, some people have suggested it. I'm not saying that's not one of the ways to do it. And as you know, it's not something so un- special for the United States because, you know, trust, I mean, breaking of monopolies and stuff was actually done before. So it was not something which was unheard of even for the United States. And of course, as we know, the U.S. also was a country with very high tax rates, marginal tax rates, which are extremely high and so on. So there is a little bit of an ideology which is being projected, as I was saying before, about democracy projecting in the past, like things like that would never had never happened. Of course, they did happen. Uh, so that's one way. But I think more important way is actually towards the end of my book, when I come back with like, I think, four, four sort of uh, conclusions. And I think the, the most important one is reducing the role of money in politics. So technically speaking, even if Jeff Bezos stays with $120 billion, if you don't allow him or other people like him to actually have an influence in politics, which means public fun- financing public financing of the campaigns, then, of course, the, the, their influence will be much less. There is still the, the, the issue of the media control by the rich, which, of course, is a separate issue, and I think that, too, has to be put on the table. But I'm not saying that the only solution well, is just to make them up. <laughs> you know, if the rich and all the media, we might not have a media right now in this country. That's we might true. not have a Washington Absolutely. Post. We might I, not have I a agree. There, there, will be, there will be one channel. You know, it will be like the Soviet Union. You would have right. one channel. It's no, no, I agree with that. that yeah. But uh, I, I, I'm not saying that actually one should totally exclude it. But, you know, there is something. I mean, just let me put it on a very intuitive level. There is something odd the current, in the current situation. And as I said, I'm not very keen always to talk about the current situation, but look at the current situation. There is Trump, who is a an oligarch, whatever, plutocrat, in, who is a president. Uh, Bloomberg, who is actually running a very serious campaign to unseat one oligarch by another oligarch, who, of course, in uh, by on his own, owns a media empire. And then you have Jess Bezos, the richest man in America with the media empire. I mean, this is very clearly uh, sort of a concentration of economic wealth, media control, and political power. I think it's obvious, it seems to me. Uh, one of the, I mean, I'll hear some stats about sort of wealth inequality in this country you know, thrown around. I mean, there's different ways, uh, ways of figuring it, but the top 1% own 40% of the wealth, and maybe the bottom 80% only own like a, a, a single-digit fraction. What are the... <laughs> Sort of, what are the right numbers? I mean, what are the numbers where then you're not concerned anymore? If it's not the top 1% own 40, I have a feeling if oh. the number was the top 1% own 20, people would be saying the top 1% own 20. That's We can't have that. As long as they own a lot, yeah. this, this, argue, this argument will be repeated. I, I just, maybe you know less is the right answer. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think really there is a number, you know, that we can put it's not the 18%, 23, yeah. I don't think 31. Bernie, I, I think if it was yeah. one owning the one owning 20, that Bernie Sanders is not going to say like, wow, we've we've really achieved equality in this country. Yeah, you know, it is, I think it's, it's a difficult number. I mean, there are many reasons for that, you know, for example. I can see it's kind of a dumb question, but I certainly say, you know, it, I can it, see the numbers. I actually think that you might, that people might, uh, when people argue that there is too much uh, uh, wealth inequality. They argue, I mean, take, for example, Angus Deaton, who is far from socialist and who is actually arguing that there is too much influence of wealth on political process. So I think they argue that these extremely high fortunes, which are not only limited to the top, you know, five guys, you know, or 10 or 20, they actually have quite a lot of influence on the political space. But, you know, when we come to the to the statistics of wealth inequality, things really get very, very complicated 
complicated. First, what is counted in wealth? So I don't want to give sort of now a lecture about that, mm -hmm. but also the very fact that the bottom of the U.S. income distribution uh, uh, might actually have reasonably good lives because they are borrowing and then their net wealth is close to zero or maybe negative, but their sort of way of life is not really very bad because they're able to borrow. Uh, uh, secondly, I think one reason which I think actually we have also this very high concentration of wealth is because the middle class essentially only owns housing. And you have very little of financial assets in the middle. You know, the most of, I think actually in Ed Wolf's book, it is the top 10% of Americans own 92% of financial assets. So that's where really the concentration is very high, is that actually very little of the trickling down of the financial assets. Assets. And that's why I'm actually arguing for broadening capital ownership. Right. So um, uh, typically, uh, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. So that, so that, uh, that, that the, the great disparity you mentioned, because uh, the average person, we don't, we don't own a lot of, uh, we don't own a lot of stock. Uh, but is what, what about housing? I mean, are, yeah. isn't isn't you would get the you would get the impression the reason that rich people. Uh, on a lot of assets is because it's all been through inheritance, or they've, or, or I don't know, maybe they've gotten it through through cronyism. But isn't it just housing is a big part of this story? No, housing for the middle class. Actually, when we speak of the middle class, it's really much higher than that. Uh, the U.S. picture, and I think it's the same is in many other rich countries, is the bottom thirty percent they have zero net assets. Mm -hmm. Then from the thirtieth percentile to the ninety-fifth percentile, the bulk or ninety-plus percent of your assets is housing. Mm -hmm. And then when you come to the top five percent, because obviously you know they're they are no longer going to spend on housing like having 50 mansions. Right. They go into the financial assets. So that's where the financial assets and are. How, and how do you give the middle class more financial assets? Certainly, I, re I remember, you know, in Pat, there's been all kinds of social security privatization plans, maybe uh, some sort of sovereign wealth funds. How do you how do you go about that? Or how do you, you know, recommend that's not an that? easy question because, of course, people would tell you and say, well, uh, you know, maybe middle class people who are actually don't have very high incomes, they don't want really to invest in something which is insecure asset and and, you know, in shares or even bonds and so on. However, I think not sufficient uh, effort has been made for that. Uh, I argue in a book that you can have at least three different ways of trying to help that. One is worker shareholding, but which actually there is uh, there is a framework uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, employee stock ownership mm -hmm. plans. And of course, as you know, there are quite a few companies that had that or actually have still that. Um, a second point is giving tax advantages to small investors. I think it's quite an important point because currently uh, tax advantages really go very often to the large investors, who, which moreover are able because they have more income to uh, more wealth to actually have higher return on that wealth because as you know very often there is like a you know the the wealth fund managers are not going to take your account if you have like $10,000 to invest right. so obviously you get much better advice if you're rich and the third way would be inheritance taxation which could be used actually to give uh, capital grants to people at a given age to everybody you know that was um, Tony Atkinson's suggestion going back to James Mead from the 1970s so, you know, there could be attempts to broaden the middle class ownership. Do you think the state capitalist model that China has, that, that, that it will be, that over the next generation, that is a sustainable economic model 
that people will say, yes, that's another that's another way of doing capitalism in a way that will keep your put your country on the technological frontier, will keep raising your broad middle class. Will that be viewed as a you know it may not have the freedoms you want, and Milton Friedman may not like it, but that that is a that is obviously a viable model that stood this test of time. Jim, I'm not sure that Milton Friedman wouldn't like it. Actually, I think he might like it, because I think if you look at Milton Friedman or even Hayek, if there was a sort of weights that they would give to democracy versus uh, economic freedom, I would say that they would go for 90% economic freedom, 10% democracy. Uh, so I'm not quite sure on that. But uh, is it a viable model? You know, that's the model which also can encounter some problems. In the same way that the American model of democracy can encounter plutocratic problems, Chinese model can encounter many problems. One, the demand for greater democracy and generally say in the affairs, in the way that the, the economy or the country is being run. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, coalescing and, uh, and the concentration of political and economic wealth, but through the political channels. And it is not an accident, I mentioned Trump before, but it's not an accident that she and his family, President Xi and his family and other people who are at the top, first they are princeling, which means they are really second generation or sometimes third generation, actually people who are linked with the Communist Party, and also that their children have become rich. Like, for example, Deng's kids have become very rich also. So th this is a danger because the, the sort of legitimacy of the system is undermined by that type of behavior. So there are really serious dangers that that system could be maintained. However, if they do solve these problems, and in that sense I see the anti-corruption campaign as a way to trying to sort of solve that problem, the fact that China is growing so fast, the fact that actually technologically, which nobody expected 10 years ago, in some areas it not only caught up, but actually is maybe at the advanced stage of uh, technological development, uh, may be replicated and may be seen as an example that the elites elsewhere might like to replicate. Right. Uh, I would question whether Hayek would like the China oh, really? made, made in 2025 plan. They had a real confidence in the engineers of China be able to, you know, target uh, certain sectors for subsidies. But, uh, and, I, and I'm sure uh, several listeners are probably having the same opinion. So I feel at the very least I need to express <laughs> to express. Jim, let me just so, say that. So, so they so they probably stopped screaming. <laughs> let me just clarify that you, I think, actually mentioned the absence of democracy. Yeah. And I think that Hayek and Friedman were, as I was saying before, not putting a big weight on democracy as such. Yeah. Yes. Now, decentralized coordination, yes, they probably would not like actually that the decisions that of the, the government or the state would make decisions on how to whom the loans should go. I agree with that. They, they would not like that. So I do agree. I have a, a, a blog, which I think maybe some people would like to, to read, it's called it's an Hayekian block. communism <laughs> in China. So there is a certain Hayekian part there. Uh, the, the finish up, uh, I like liberal democracies. I like market capitalism. What is, what is your sort of best case scenario for the future of liberal capitalism? And what would be sort of your your concerning, most worrisome case? You know, the, the most, the best case, objectively speaking, is the Fukuyama case. Actually, everybody becomes nice, you know, people, there are no more armies, everybody just trades and they live happily ever after. They are not extremely rich people, everybody, everything trickles down. I don't think it's a realistic scenario. Uh, so I don't think that the world will ever, at least within 
to time spent that we can think of uh, will become unified both economically and and um, and um, uh, politically. I think the un- economic unification, which was actually achieved by capitalism, uh, to me it seems to make lots of sense because, of course, it's easier to say down now than maybe 30, 40 years ago, but it makes sense because it really works on our to some extent, natural instincts of wishing to improve our economic position, going back to Adam Smith, you know, the betterment of our own, you know, self, first self-interest and betterment of our economic position. And that's something which I think is common, whether you take uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, Russian, you know, Serbian like myself, American. Are you arguing that, arguing the good enough case that we're, we're sort of, there's enough opportunity, we don't need nicer televisions, we don't need, I don't need that... Some people do argue that case, and they argue for maybe environmental reasons, it's the, or the degrowth case. That it seems to me that is still a very no, difficult that, argument that, to make to people. That, you have enough; it's good enough. No, but that argument, I, I don't believe in that argument because I think that actually what we need, what we always, and that's how the system is built, is to produce new needs in us. And this is something that, you know, people of a certain age like myself, we, I remember that we didn't have the need for being instantly in touch with everybody in the world. And the reason why we didn't need, uh, didn't have that need is because that particular gadget did not exist right. then. But now it exists. And then in 10 years, there will be another gadget that we cannot even imagine now, because if we could imagine, we would have become billionaires, but we don't imagine it. And then we would pursue, we would feel the need for that. So in that sense, the belief that that actually our needs are finite and then somehow we would end up with some world, uh, I think it's a fantasy world, where actually we would work like 12 hours a day and we would just go to theaters and stuff. That doesn't make any sense, so I don't believe in that at all. And you're, and sort of your, your, to end up sort of your mm. worst case, your worst case scenario, oh. you know, for 20 Well, you know, the worst case scenario, let's put it like the worst case scenario is that currently democratic capitalist countries slide into plutocracy democracy gets basically uh, hollowed out. Uh, there is greater role of the state. There is a reversal of globalization. There are really a breaking of the trade links, global value chains. There are some trade wars. And uh, China essentially becomes much more, how should I say, either xenophobic or actually with greater power of the state. So the, the worst case scenario would be basically dismantling of globalization and to a large extent maybe dismantling of democracy. My guest today has been Branko Milanovic. Branko, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.